All right. We're going to spend some time back in our series in the book of Nehemiah. The last two weeks we've been in the Gospel of Mark, but we're moving back to Nehemiah this week. So if you have a Bible, we're in Nehemiah chapter 3. And this is one of those funny Old Testament chapters that is full of a lot of names that are hard to pronounce. So be gracious with me. And we're actually going to be reflecting on all of chapter 3 and the first six verses of chapter 4, but we're just going to read a shorter portion of chapter 3 and then skip ahead because it's a lot of names. So hang with me and we'll read through this and then Albert will come and share with us. So Nehemiah 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Banna, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, and their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Joida, the son of Pesea, and Meshalem, the son of Besodea, repaired the gate of Yeshana. You guys all know all these names and where all these things are, right? <laughs> cool. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadin, the Maranathite, and the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor and of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Heriah, the goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumpa, repaired opposite his house. Those of you who are about to have babies are taking notes, right? These are good names. And next to him, Hattish, the son of Hasabaniah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hasab, the son of Pehath, Moab, repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. And then let's skip over to 4, and we'll read the first six verses of chapter 4. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Good morning. I'm going to continue reading from verse 12 and finish the chapter. I'm totally kidding. Don't worry. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for these people. We ask, Lord, for your presence to be here with us as we've come to worship and praise you. 
as we've come together to hear your word and to fellowship, to break bread with one another. We ask for your blessing upon our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've ventured into studying the book of Nehemiah as we enter this season of building, growing our church. And so this morning we look at these scriptures to go about doing God's work in God's way. Now today, as Steve has shared, is not your typical verse-by-verse study that we usually do because we're going to look at this entire section of Scripture with a wider lens here. Now, please don't misinterpret what we're doing this morning because we know that according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We know that, right? So please don't misinterpret that we're not going verse by verse. Something we might do in the future is look at this in a little bit more detail, but we're going to do something different this morning and just get a broader perspective of the remarkable work that these people did. Here's the first thought. That there was no way for Jerusalem to be rebuilt without the entire community. You look at the entirety of chapter 3 and it shows us that all of God's people contributed. Everyone was involved. The building project Nehemiah headed up needed everyone. Now when looking at our mission at our church, what is it? There are so many verses that we can look at. Let me just pull out one. In Matthew 28 verses 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Everyone is needed for that mission, Matthew 28. And here in chapter 3, there are dozens of sections of wall, and if you count it all up, I believe it's over 40. And they all needed to be rebuilt. And everyone was needed from an individual level, from their small group level, and as a large group. And when looking at the Bible, you'll notice that a personal relationship with God is always connected to a larger community. So when someone is outside of community and they claim that their relationship is personal, that is just between them and God, yes, sure, there are times when it's just you and God, but that's not all that it is. We were created to be in community. God created us to be together for a purpose, on mission. And when you look at the rebuilding of the wall in Nehemiah's time, you notice how they were brought together for a common purpose of doing God's work in God's way. And it's similar for us today. That we have the common purpose of doing God's work in God's way, even though we're really different. That we have the mission to build up, right, disciple, and to multiply, to evangelize. Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So whether it is a private time of retreat just between you and God, or a time with your small group, or here in a larger group gathering, we have the same purpose, we have the same mission, just like those individuals And those small groups and that larger group as a whole rebuilding that wall. It's the same for us. Now we've added a third worship service on a Sunday to further our purpose, our mission of doing God's work in God's way. To further our mission of building up the church, discipleship, and seeing to it that it multiplies, evangelism. And we'll need every individual, we'll need every small group, we'll need everyone in this large group to further that purpose, to further that mission. Now, unless we are together, synchronized for the purpose of doing God's work in God's way, and harmonized in mission to disciple and evangelize, our community might as well be called D 
degeneration rather than regeneration. Right? We need to be together on this. We'll fail in the purpose. We'll fail in the mission if we are not together. And you look at this huge project that Nehemiah had before him. How in the world was he going to get that rebuilt? He was not qualified to lead this project. He's not a city planner. He's not an engineer. He's none of those things. He's not a military general. And he didn't have the qualified people to build this project. You look at that whole list in chapter 3. Perfumers? Goldsmiths? What did they have? What did this group have? Commitment and care. You and I might not have the skills or the experience to tackle a huge project like changing our community for the better. We might not have those things. But if we commit to serving and loving the people of our community and we care about the people of this community, God can use us to change the lives of the people around us. Commitment and care. Are we a church community committed to the gospel? Do we care enough about people who don't have the gospel to share it with them? Do people outside of church know that you are committed to Jesus? That you care about your faith in Jesus? Or does it just lie dormant until you show up at some church function or you show up on Sunday? No one else knows you're a Christian. You're just kind of doing your own thing and then it just, poof, you're a Christian on Sunday. And then back to the regular world again. Now something fascinating about Nehemiah is the number of small groups that were rebuilding the wall. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed that there was this incredible diversity within all these different small groups? Yes, they had one purpose and mission, but a very diverse group in makeup. Some of these groups were made up of people from a geographical area, right? Verse 2, Jericho. Verse 5, Tekoa. Others, because they were of the same family, you look at verse 12, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem and his daughters. And some gathered because of a common vocation, verse 8, goldsmiths. Another group, because of the religious roles they held as priests or Levites, verses 1, 17, 22. So there were these groups that met up for all different reasons. Political ties, verse 7, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. All these different groups, a bunch of smaller groups, all contributing to the common purpose, the common mission, and all of them did their part. So what? How does this apply to us? What's the relevance for us? Firstly, this. A question for you. Are you part of a smaller group where you are known and you can know other people? And then secondly, if you are part of a smaller group, how does your small group fit into the larger group that we have here? Where we gather as a community, gathered under a common purpose, under a common mission, as we praise and worship God together, to show unity as we come together. And that's why we've intentionally built that half-hour time of fellowship after the 9 a.m. service and before the 1045 service. That 1015 to 1045 window there is an intentional time for us to gather together as one body so that we aren't separating people from this service and that service. When we are together as a large group, we have solidarity. We give in solidarity as a church. We give in solidarity as a larger community to bless others in a way that it just wouldn't be as effective if we were to do it individually or as a smaller group, your small group. 10% of the entire church's budget goes to global missions. Some of these churches wouldn't be in existence 
if it weren't for your generosity. And we're able to do that as a larger church body. You wouldn't be able to do that individually. As a larger church body, we're more effective in outreach, in the way that we provide facilities and resources to the homeless, the refugees, our at-risk youth communities, in how we bless our community by hosting blood drives, town hall meetings, peace rallies, all these types of things that the larger group is able to provide. So the large group gathering is really important, but so are the smaller group gatherings. And as the church continues to be built up, discipleship, and as we continue to multiply evangelism, the large group gathering and the small group gathering, those all have an importance that needs to grow with the church along with the church. And we'll need to figure out how to come together as a larger group to worship and praise God in unity, even though we have multiple services, what we'll need to support and encourage the organic growth of diverse offerings of small groups so that people have places where they can grow in their relationship with God and with other people. Now, will everyone buy into what we're doing as a church? I really hope so, but I don't think so. You look at verse 5. It took Coites repaired but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. See, not everyone will buy into what we are doing. There will be people who won't be on mission with us, which weakens our community. That type of independence does not help our church. What we need to work toward is an interdependence, where we exercise commitment and care for each other, taking ownership for our part in this community. And that's what happened in Nehemiah chapter 3. If you went and asked anyone working on that wall who they were, what they did, where they were working, why they were doing it, they'd be able to tell you an answer to all those questions. And if you don't have a reply to the questions, it's not too late to join us. Join us in building up discipleship and multiplying evangelism, sharing the good news about Jesus with us. And if you're not sure how to go about it, you can come talk to me, talk to Steve who did the announcements, fill out a connect card and put it in the box back there and we'll get in touch with you. We need you. We need you. We may not agree on everything. In fact, I can guarantee that we don't agree on everything because those in Jerusalem didn't agree with each other on everything. Right? They all had their different ideas on even how the walls built. And we're not even talking about ideologies or philosophies. or Just even what's in front of them, they couldn't even agree on that, I bet, because it's not like they had these cookie-cutter molds of stones that they did. They just kind of like looked at that stone, like, hey, let's grab that one, hey, let's grab that one. And how are we going to fit all this stuff? It wasn't a uniform project, so people are just kind of building. There's no training. They didn't have training to do this stuff. They weren't contractors. And we have all these people that were different, and some of these people are really prickly, just really prickly people. Our church doesn't have prickly people, but you know. <laughs> Some of you are really prickly. But we deal with similar issues today as we serve the larger church body. And those differences we have need to be dealt with and talked about. But we need to keep in sight the greater good of the church community. And that's why we need to commit and we need to care. That's why we have intentionally created that half-hour time of fellowship between the two morning services. If anything, this morning, could you just commit to that time? Even if it's just five minutes. You don't have to stay the whole half hour, but just even five minutes just to go that you don't leave right after service. Let's be together. 
Let's commit to connecting with one another, growing with one another, and let's not forget the evening service because it's kind of like turning into the stepchild or something. Like, we always forget about them. Stop by and visit those nocturnal people every once in a while. Just pop in and say hello. They're semi-normal. They don't laugh at all, but, but, but you can... They don't even smile. I'm like up here talking like, hey, 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 and then... Golly, like this rough vampire crowd. Take a look at Nehemiah 3. How did they know that they were getting the job done? How did they know that this was working? The walls would meet. They'd meet. This small group over here was building a wall until they met that other small group on this side, and then they met that small group on that side. That's how they knew that things were getting done. Are we meeting? Are we connecting with other people? That's how you're going to know that things are getting done. Not because you're in the silo and independence. Our small groups can't go independently. We're going to have to touch one another. We're all connected to the larger purpose and the mission of the larger church. We're going to have to touch. Now imagine the guys working on the wall where you know, one group decided, hey, we have an awesome view to the Mediterranean Sea. Look at that. It's beautiful. Let's frame out a huge window right here. And we can just kind of put our lawn chairs out and we can just watch the waves. Really bad idea for a wall. Right? This is a defensive wall. Bad idea to put a big window there. Not a good thing. Or what if some other small group building their section, they decide, you know what? This wall right here would make a great place to start a water slide that goes to the Pool of Sheila. That would be awesome. You know, when it gets hot, it would just be like, and going down. Not the purpose and mission of the wall, of the larger group. Each smaller group needed to take ownership, building their part of the wall so they would meet together on either side and complete the wall for the city, the larger group's defense. And if some groups are doing their part while others are not, we're not going to meet and we're going to have people worried about their views and their water slides, distracted from the purpose and the mission of our church. We are to build up the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Discipleship, we need to do this. We are to evangelize. You look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Evangelism. We are not to keep the good news of the gospel to ourselves. We are to build up the body of Christ and to multiply. Your purpose and mission as a follower of Christ is not to be a good father or mother or to be a good husband or wife. Those are byproducts of being a disciple of Jesus. But that is not your aim of existence. That is not your purpose and mission as a follower of Jesus. The purpose and mission of a Christian is not to go to a church building. We do it because it's a place where we can come together in worship, in prayer, for one another, to fellowship, to exercise our gifts in service to one another. And many other wonderful things happen here. But if our mission is not ultimately discipleship and evangelism, how are we going to reach the lost? Are we just building a club for ourselves? Just something that we can enjoy for ourselves? So, are the small groups that you're involved in in line with the purpose and mission of the larger church body, or are you framing out that window for your view or putting in a water slide? 
And our church is a small part of the greater kingdom, aren't we? We're just a small blip. And it's not just all about our church. We contribute to the greater kingdom. We build up other Christians and we share about Jesus wherever we're at. We are building his church. We are part of the global church. We are together with other churches following Jesus. We have to be reminded of this. When we are purposefully on mission to do God's work his way, undoubtedly, we will face adversity. We will run into obstacles, opposition, and this is something we need to know as we continue to serve God, especially if you're in a leadership role because you're going to feel the brunt of this resistance. As leaders, we need to be clear about where God is leading us. We need to be confident to where the Lord is guiding us and we are to be led by the Spirit. A dangerous thing for leaders to do is to be led by consensus or majority rule. Do you see any of the great leaders in the Bible led by consensus? Jesus, Paul, Peter, Moses, Nehemiah, Esther, Deborah, anybody? Is anyone led by consensus? I'm not saying that consensus is a bad thing. It actually can be a great thing. We just can't be led by it. We are led by the Spirit, and then we build consensus. We don't seek consensus and then try to fit God into it. And every time we enter into leadership, we risk not having consensus. But the thing is, we need to follow our convictions and then build consensus on that conviction. And as long as you hold a position of leadership, no matter where it is, at work or a sports team or whatever it may be, you can't make everyone happy with every decision that you make. We receive all these connect cards all the time, so I'm not picking on you. I don't even know who you are, the names or anything like this. But let's take worship, for example. There are some people that put on there like, oh, we want the band to be bigger and more people and like drums. You have a drum set there and all this kind of stuff and we like it to be louder. But then on the flip side of it, we have people that write when we do that sort of thing, when you have the drums, oh, it's too loud in here. It's too much volume. Like we need it to be quieter. I'd like it if it was just Jane. That's all. You can't make everyone happy. You can't do it. No matter what we do, there's going to be the opposite. Someone's going to want the opposite. That's just how things are. Leadership is really hard. And building consensus comes after conviction. Here's a quote by Winston Churchill that he said during World War II. There's only one duty, only one safe course, and that is to try to be right and not to fear to do or say what you believe to be right. That is the only way to deserve and to win the confidence of our great people in these days of trouble. Do you hear what he's saying? You build consensus after conviction. Conviction comes first. And during your time of leadership, you can experience being a hero or you can experience being a zero. And you look at Jesus, loved by some, hated by others, but he wasn't one to be led by consensus. He was led by his father. Anyone knows who's in leadership that leadership is hard. And when things are going well, you get credit for it. But when things are not, you take the hit. And Nehemiah's position of leadership was no different. Let's go into chapter 4 now to meet some of this opposition. 
Opposition that just can't believe what's happening right before their eyes. You recall that the walls have been destroyed for decades. For decades they've been like this. Multiple generations of people who grew up in Jerusalem knew nothing different than these broken walls, than these broken people. Then all of a sudden this guy who was a cupbearer to the king shows up from Susa. He comes in with this military entourage, a bunch of resources and materials. And when he gets into the city, he just kind of kicks back there for three days. So people are wondering, what is this guy doing? The thing is, the opposition has no idea that Nehemiah had invested 90 to 120 days of fasting and praying into this project. The opposition has no idea that he put his life on the line when the king noticed that he was sad and he asked, what's wrong with you? The opposition has no idea of how wise his moves were and how he got the right paperwork from the king, how he got the right materials from the king. The opposition doesn't know that he went out and he surveyed the wall for himself to see what was wrong with it. All they see is Nehemiah and a bunch of people rebuilding the walls after generations of it being just a remnant of what it used to be a few days after they get into town. And now that they see this stuff, they're like, what in the world are you guys doing? And they get mad about it. Verse 1, chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. This is the opposition we all face when we're doing something for God. Whenever we declare biblical truth, quote the Bible in its proper context, such as saying when Jesus said, John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Try throwing that out to our universalist, Unitarian society. Except through me. That we declare that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus were literal historical events. That sex before marriage and outside of marriage is a sin. Whenever you share any biblical truth, you can guarantee an opposition. And you know what the first reactions will be when doing something for God? Anger, rage, jeering. I was having lunch with a couple who were living together. They weren't married yet. And I shared with them that they were sinning. Not that living together is a sin, but what they were doing while living together was a sin. And they weren't happy with me. Actually, she was pretty angry with me. And the people around us who were eavesdropping, including our server, began to jeer. I could see him go over to his coworkers, mocking our conversation, and then, then seeing them join in the mockery and all this kind of stuff, and just kind of seeing the stuff. I still left him a good tip. <laughs> people are full of opinions. And when you do something for God, people tend to keep to themselves. No way. Not here. They let you know what they think. Why anger? Why jeering? Why mocking? Why scorning? Why those things? Because you don't have to think. When you do those things, you don't have to think. You don't have to enter in the conversation and think about what is being said. It doesn't require a conversation. You just say what's on your mind and then it's done. You mock and then you leave. You get angry and then you leave. You don't have to think about what's being said. You've already judged it and you've moved on because you're mocking it. And so you look at what Sanballat does in verse 2, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the armies of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Just jeering, mocking. And you look at Tobiah Sanballat's mini-me here in verse 3. 
Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Kind of a funny joke. If You get it? I get it anyway. And how did Nehemiah respond? Look at how he responds. Essentially it's this. He prays. He prays. We know that Nehemiah is a person of prayer. He prays and he fasts for three to four months before the king asks him what's wrong. And then when he's asked by the king, what do you want? What does he do? He prays. And in the midst of this ridicule, he prays. Verses 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah doesn't enter into a shouting match. He doesn't get into a fight. I had a bunch of people at that burger joint where I was talking to this couple just kind of mocking and saying things and whatever. I didn't go on a shouting match. I didn't get into a fight with them. I prayed for them. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22 says this, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. The Lord said, Vengeance is mine in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. Nehemiah was ridiculed, he was mocked, and his response was prayer, waiting for God to do whatever he was going to do. And all the while, with the jeering and the scoffing going on, Nehemiah and his crew just continued building the wall. Verse 6, So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now this was a strategic approach to completing the wall. For the circumference of the wall to progress all together. Now why? Well, just looking at practical application to our church. You think about how we approach the building of our church ministries and what we're doing and our outreaches and things like that. We can't approach building one ministry at a time because then it leaves holes in other ministries, in other areas, right? We can't focus just on children's ministry and pouring all of our resources into children's ministry because what about our small groups? Or what about different elements of our Sunday large group gathering or our outreaches or missions or anything like that? For us to build this ministry, all of it well, we need to build on multiple things and the circumference of the ministry at the same time. We can't just focus on one thing. So you see how important everyone is. Because if you're not part of the children's ministry, then what's your part if we're just focusing on that? See, we need all of you to work on your section of the wall for your ministry to move towards completion to wholeness, for our ministry to reach, for us to touch each other, for our walls to connect so that we can connect the entire wall together. You see things that people on your part of the wall that I can't see. You're working on things that children's ministry can't see, that the refugee outreach can't see, that the homeless outreach can't see. You're bringing us to completion and to wholeness. Your contribution is so valuable in the flourishing and the thriving of our church. I'm just a part of it. I'm a small part of it. I'm not involved in most of the ministries at this church. The ministry staff is just a small part of it. If you combine all of the ministry staff together, we're a very small percentage of what you guys are doing at the church in terms of ministry. See, we're all just different parts. 
And we all need each other to complete the wall, for our walls to meet each other, and for us then to strengthen one another. When we meet each other, we strengthen one another. We're holding each other together. Now look at this team that Nehemiah had. You notice any big names, notable names, on that entire list in chapter 3? Anybody? Is Jesus in there? He doesn't come till later, but is he in there? Is Moses... Like, there's no big celebrity Bible guy in there, right? Now, some may argue that Nehemiah was a big name. But he didn't get that until after the project's done. Think about, like, in the middle of this, or before this, there are no notable people building this wall. Just everyday people committed to working together for the glory of God, caring for one another, just like you and me. People just like you and me. People who the world won't remember when we're gone. Now some of us who are probably a little bit more arrogant or narcissists think like, oh, I'm going to make history. Pray for you. The rest of us in reality, probably not going to. Do any of you know your great-great-grandfather's name? How about three? Great-great-great. And your family and you don't even know. How is the world going to know who you are? You don't even know your great-great... Do you even know your great-grandfather's name? <laughs> Ancestry.com, that's why. <laughs> Most people, you are not going to be remembered. Let's just be truthful. We're just going to die and then we move on. No notable people here. But in the eyes of God, you're of incredible value. He knows every single person that worked on that wall. He knows every single person in here. And what we do for him today, in the present, he will remember for all eternity. You might not even have people in your own family down in lineage that will remember you, but God does. So many of us worry about our future when we have today. Right now, in the present, you can make a difference right now. You matter to us. To our church, you matter. To our church community, you are so important to us right now. We need you to build together for the glory of God. And you can choose to be a part of this community. See, there are a lot of things that are totally out of your hand. Most things in life are kind of out of our hand, aren't they? Do you control anything in terms of the political climate or anything happening to the earth or anything? Choosing to be a part here isn't one of those things. Playing a part here, building your part of the wall, you can be a part of that. You can choose to do that. You can decide how much effort you want to put in here. You can decide what your attitude is going to be like while you serve here. Now, we can't control what will happen in the ministry here. We can influence it, but we can't know with complete certainty that the things we are doing are going to work. Some things are just out of our control. We just kind of have to wait and see. But the things we do have a say over, like committing and caring for God's work here at Regeneration today, you do have a say over that. You can do that. And if you haven't already, can you start working on a piece of the wall here? We need you, seriously. Join up with some folks and build that part of the wall that you're being called to. There's so many pieces. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these people here and thank you, God, that we're of such importance that you died for us. 
that you laid down your life, that you chose, Lord, in your plans to come down clothed as a human being to take on our sin upon yourself. That even though we won't be remembered in history, we will be remembered in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.